0: Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you for joining us here on the America Out Loud Network. Well, let's dive right in, shall we? You're hearing a lot about the Supreme Court these days, and one of the things that that really stands out to me is anytime a new Supreme Court justice is 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 nominated. In other words, when when there's a vacancy, there's a there's a justice position to be filled, or when something very noteworthy comes along. For instance, does you know hypothetically. Someone leaks a draft of a Supreme Court decision that would likely overturn a nearly 50-year-old decision that imposed a top-down centralized abortion standard on all 50 states. It gets people out in droves. I have seen a number of meltdowns. I mean, I remember when Trump was elected and I thought, wow, you couldn't, you couldn't throw a bigger temper tantrum than what people are throwing right now. I was wrong. I was wrong. No, you you can throw a bigger tantrum than that. And we're seeing one right now. Antifa, as well as other, you know, left direct action groups are definitely stepping up and uh, going out, tearing things up, threatening violence because, well, they perceive that the Supreme Court has done something that is so supremely not in their favor that they are definitely willing to get violent. Interestingly enough, no one's calling it insurrection. In fact, some of the same people who are prosecuting or working to prosecute people who protested on January 6th of 2021. Well, they're, you know, they're out there actually telling people, get to the streets, burn it down if you have to. Interesting double standard. But the thing that blows me away is you look at what's happening around us right now. And I'm just going to take, for instance, economically. The feds are spending, you know, trillions of dollars on stimulus or or when the the Federal Reserve quadruples its balance sheet. We see see things like inflation. We see things like extreme debt crippling the country. People's dollars losing their purchasing power. That doesn't get people motivated. I mean, it affects virtually everybody, but that doesn't get people out there, you know, throwing fits and, you know, weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth. Kind of a curious thing. So I thought we could spend the first segment of the show exploring why social issues tend to dominate. But before we do that, I'd like to lay some groundwork with how the Supreme Court came to rule us. And for some people, that may seem like a a, a really, I don't know, a provocative statement. What do you mean rule us? But you listen to the way some people are talking today, particularly on the left. Well, you know, only five oligarchs, you know, unelected oligarchs are, you know, responsible for overturning the most important uh, women's rights law. Okay, it wasn't law. It was a decision, and it was a bad decision. And all, all this decision, if, if and when the actual official decision is released, all it does is kick it back to the states, in which case the states can make that decision themselves. In other words, federalism, is going to re- reappear in a way that we haven't seen for quite some time. But it seems like whenever the Supreme Court gets involved, you know that's, that's when you know that's when we really start to, to see just how the federal government views the limits of its power. So let's let's talk about uh, about how the Supreme Court came to be such an institution where a simple majority of nine lawyers can impose their will, on the the whole of society. Now you have to remember, the federal system that was created by the founders and ratified by the states no longer exists in America. The destruction of the enumerated, separated, balanced powers of the Constitution has taken a lot of generations to realize. In fact, it started much earlier than most people think. When the Constitution was first ratified, it was the states that balanced the power of the new national government. So if you wonder, well, where was judicial review at that time? It was the states and the people who would look at federal policy and say, not going to do that. We're not going to agree with it. And if you remember the Whiskey Rebellion, there was a good example of that taken to an extreme. James Madison actually used the term national to describe the powers of an independent central government and the term federal to refer to those powers that came from the contributions of the states. So that would mean the national government was dependent upon the states, not the other way around. And if you remember history, you'll remember that until 1913, U.S. senators were appointed or they were elected by state legislatures. That was before the 17th Amendment. And no, it wasn't perfect. Well, those states might have been corrupt, you know, they might have, you know, sent somebody there to look after their interests. Well, that was kind of the point. Those senators' allegiance was to the states they represented, not to Washington, D.C. And with the states controlling half the national legislature, it was up to the states to decide if they would implement national policies or not. They determined whether a law passed by Congress was constitutional or not. So in the simplest terms, what that meant was the national government was duty-bound to follow the states rather than to dictate to them as their superior which it really never should be able to, considering that the national government was a creation of the states who came together to create the Constitution, which in turn called the federal government into existence. Are you following that, that chain of command? Now, Thomas Jefferson explained the reasoning behind this structure. He said, the capital and leading object of the Constitution was to leave with the states all authorities which respected their citizens only, and to transfer to the United States those which respected citizens of foreign or other states, to make us several or separate as to ourselves, but one as to all others. Now, the oft-misquoted supremacy clause clearly states that its supremacy only applies in pursuance of those constitutional powers enumerated for the branches of national government. So just because it says, you know, shall be supreme, that's not a blank check, for national authority only in those areas where they actually have legitimately delegated powers from the states. And what Jefferson feared was a consolidation of powers to the national government followed by the inevitable consequence of corruption. This is why the distribution of powers was so essential to good government. And by consolidating power to a centralized national government, the power of the individual states could be stolen and used to bypass the limitations of the constitution. And the Marbury v. Madison case, this is where this first major shift of consolidating power away from the states took place. In fact, it's one of the reasons why the Supreme Court still exercises power that it was never intended to have to this day. Now, you probably remember this from, you know, back in, in school, but let's review. In a nutshell, you had consolidationists, which had pushed for John Adams to make many lame duck appointments following the election of 1800, which was won by Thomas Jefferson. And these five-year appointments were intended to allow them to stay in control through the next election. Now, not not all of those appointments could be made before Jefferson took office. And when William Marbury's appointment was withdrawn, he went to the Supreme Court demanding that he be appointed to his office. Now, the justices of the court, led at that time by John Marshall, ruled that they understood the Constitution better than the man who actually wrote it. They gave themselves the power of judicial review in which one branch of the national government provides a check on the other branches of that government. And by the way, it's nowhere found in Section 3 of the Constitution. It's not there. But essentially what they said was, look, we understand we are a creation of the Constitution, but we will now decide what is and what isn't constitutional for the other two branches of government. The creature is asserting power as a creator. The states which called a federal government into existence through the compact we know as the U.S. Constitution are being told one part of their creation, the Supreme Court, will now decide what is and what isn't constitutional. The Supreme Court alone. And what that meant was the states could no longer act as a check on the national government. So the rule established by the John Marshall Court took precedence over liberty. Liberty was the primary goal behind the founding of the republic. Now liberty became subservient to the rules. Then came the 14th Amendment, imposed in the Reconstruction era following the war between the states, which codified the alleged moral superiority of the national government by declaring that the Bill of Rights applied to everyone, no matter what state governments were doing. By the time the 17th Amendment was ratified and state legislatures no longer able to appoint or elect U.S. senators, the states effectively became little more than administrative offices of an all-powerful national government. That's because the loyalty of those senators stopped being to the states. Their accountability stopped being to the states and instead shifted to the national government because they were being popularly elected. Now, if you can't see how this shift in power has fed the abuse and the overreach of our unfettered national government today, what can I say? You're, you're not paying attention. And the system is not likely to fix itself. So as people vie for control of the Washington beast, as, they, as you hear people stumping for the idea we ought to pack the courts, we need to get more people on there so that we can always get a decision that goes our way. All I would ask you to remember is that the answer to the tyranny of consolidation is found in decentralization. Breaking up that power, returning it to the states and to their people. That's going to require some serious moral courage, but if this decision is released and in fact it overturns Roe v. Wade, that is the positive aspect of it. Anybody who wants an abortion is still going to be able to go get an abortion. If you want a taxpayer-funded abortion, there are states that will gladly provide that for you. Likewise, there will be states that will draw the line and say, nope, in this state, abortion is illegal You know, after this point of viability. Or, or maybe they'll say, you know, it's never legal. But it will not be a one-size-fits-all approach, and people will have a choice. They can actually go from one state to another if they choose to exercise you know their their rights as they see fit but it's going to take some courage to accept that decentralization and i frankly i'm glad to see it happening but you can see by the equal and opposite reaction on the left this greatly thwarts their plans to consolidate and control and to make sure that everybody is under one centralized authority See, the only other option is just to continue accepting official abuse as our lot in life or just to distract ourselves into a state of deliberate blindness so as to avoid the responsibility of seeing what's happened. We all have choices to make. Not all of them are easy ones, but it does help to understand exactly what we've lost so far. So from here, I want to pivot to an article by Jeff Deist from the Mises Institute. This is uh, Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. Why social issues dominate. Jeff Deist says inflation in the U.S. is at 40-year highs, while interest rates on 10-year treasury notes just hit 3%, signaling trouble for homebuyers. Truck drivers pay more than $1,000 to fill their rigs with $5 per gallon diesel to deliver your increasingly expensive groceries and Amazon packages. Crime and homelessness skyrocket in large cities, exacerbated by virulent opioids like fentanyl and crocodile. And America's proxy war with Russia in Ukraine gives rise to the most serious threats of nuclear strikes against the West since the 1960s. Yet so-called social issues like abortion or critical race theory or teaching gender identity in schools, that's what dominates our politics and our media. Virtually every voter has a strong opinion on these issues and pays far more attention to them than, say, the M2 money supply or the next Fed Open Market Committee meeting. Although the latter could have far greater impact on that voter's life and finances. So why is that so? Well, Jeff Deist says the short answer is the Supreme Court. Now, he wrote this earlier this week, but he says yesterday brought news that a leaked draft opinion, allegedly from Supreme Court Associate Justice Samuel Alito, portends the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And this brought forth paroxysms of anger and fear across the media spectrum, especially on social platforms like Twitter. Protesters quickly arrived at the newly fenced-off court building and the commentariat began enumerating the predictable dire threats for the future of women posed by a Trumpian right-wing court. Now, again, we don't see these outbursts when Congress spends $5 trillion on stimulus or the Fed quadruples its balance sheet, to put it mildly, even when gas prices double. Acting wildly beyond its constitutional parameters, the court has become the de facto super-legislature for all 50 states. The political class pretends otherwise, but the stridency of its denunciations against conservative court nominees and its slavish support for progressive nominees demonstrates the irretrievably political nature of granting a handful of justices such power over the lives of 330 million people. In such a top-down, winner-take-all environment, the stakes become needlessly high and politicized in the nastiest ways imaginable. So, of course, presidential elections and the resulting makeup of the court become matters of life or death for the true believers, whose sense of identity is rooted in the social issues ruled upon by the court. Now, this happened for two primary reasons, says says Jeff Deist. First, the so-called judicial review created a superpower to determine the constitutionality of any law at any level of government. A superpower that he points out is found nowhere in Article 3 of the Constitution. This effectively grants the court potential jurisdiction over every last state or local law right down to the most minute edicts that really ought to be none of the constitutions or ought to be none of the federal government's business and it's an absurd absurd result and gross abuse of the Constitution's shared powers under a federalist system. Even if one argues the court generally does not abuse this power to boss around states, it always could, and it sometimes does. I mean, as long as we're overturning things, let's get uh, Wickard v. Filburn on the table and see about overturning that, or anything that happens that might be loosely tied to interstate commerce is considered fair game for Regulatory action on the part of the federal government. Anyway, back to Jeff Deist's article. Second, he says, specious interpretations of the 14th Amendment and the resulting incorporation doctrine effectively threw a net of federal laws, rules and court decisions over all 50 states without their consent. Nobody at the time the amendment passed, especially not the various ratifying state legislators, could have imagined the opaque language of the amendment would cause the high court to issue a series of rulings turning states into glorified federal counties. So rather than incorporate certain provisions of a federal constitution into state law, why not do so expressly? For example, why not simply rewrite the First Amendment to say neither Congress, the various states, nor any subdivision of the various states shall make any law respecting... You get the point. But Jeff Deist says we all know why. This kind of express language would have been a complete political non-starter at the time. Even the northern states still wanted and demanded far more independence from the federal government during the Reconstruction era. So we're left with a permanent injury to federalism and the Tenth Amendment, an injury that causes social issues to play a vastly outsized role in American politics. Now, this is not to say the Supreme Court has had less impact on economic matters before uh, before, in other words, uh, like it's perverse interpretations of the Commerce Clause, that's Wickard versus Filburn, or uh, absurd rulings during the Lochner era, era. rather. But people don't flood the steps of the Supreme Court to protest minimum wage laws or scream obscenities at justices over cases of zoning in the city of New London, Connecticut. So Jeff Deist says there is nothing remotely suggesting a right to abortion in the text of the Constitution, not even under the most tortured interpretation. Thus, it is purely a matter for the states, falling under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Overturning Roe doesn't change a single abortion law in a single state, and it does not prevent any state legislature from loosening abortion restrictions in reaction. It simply revokes jurisdiction over the issue from federal courts. This ought to be an amenable solution for everyone. In fact, he puts it this way, he says, We don't need one abortion rule for all 50 states. Without the Supreme Court's invented jurisdiction, progressives in blue states can have unrestricted, taxpayer-funded abortion on demand at any stage of pregnancy. And yet, progressives never take this deal. So Jeff Deist says, Mass democracy under shifting rules, often determined by nine politicized judges, isn't a prescription for harmony and goodwill among 330 million very diverse Americans. And those millions don't agree about much, about guns or God or abortion and and much more. But they don't have to agree. In a post-liberal, post-good-faith environment, aggressive federalism and realistic discussions of political secession are the obvious path forward. If you claim to love your fellow American citizens, unyoke them from the federal superstate and then demand the same for yourself. The universalist totalizing impulse which resulted in the dramatic centralization of state power through the 20th century must be reversed in the 21st. The other way lies political strife and worse. That's some fantastic analysis on the part of Jeff Deist. Now, I want to I want to take it one step further here. Uh, Glenn Greenwald writing about the irrational misguided discourse surrounding Supreme Court controversies like Roe v. Wade, reminds us that the court, like the U.S. Constitution, was designed to be a limit on the excesses of democracy. In other words, when the majoritarian uh, the majoritarian uh, attitude could not be used to deny the minorities of their rights. And, and Glenn Greenwood is not coming at this from you know, a right-wing Christian point of view, but he says Roe... And the Roe decision back in 1973 denied, rather than upheld, the rights of citizens to decide democratically. It should have been left to the states and not turned into a one-size-fits-all federal solution that was hammered down on everybody. If you look back at the last 49 years, it's very clear it did not settle the issue once and for all. All it did was created more division, more conflict. And, and clearly, by virtue of the fact that people are literally rioting in the streets, it, uh, it has uh, sparked even further backlash when that is reversed. Now, he says the reaction to Monday night's news that the court intends to overrule Roe was driven by a lot of common fallacies. And he says it was bizarre to accuse, to watch liberals accuse the court of acting undemocratically as they denounce the ability of five unelected aristocrats, in the words of Vox's Ian Milheiser to decide the question of abortion rights. Well, who do they think to have decided Roe in the first place? In fact, Milheiser's argument here, unelected Supreme Court justices have no business mucking around in abortion rights, is supremely ironic given that it was unelected judges who issued Roe back in 1973, in the process striking down numerous democratically elected laws. Worse, Glenn Greenwald points out, this rhetoric perfectly echoes the arguments which opponents of Roe have made for decades. Namely, it is the democratic process, not unelected judges, which should determine what, if any, limits will be placed on the legal ability to provide or maintain an abortion. Indeed, Roe was the classic expression of the above-described anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic values. Seven unelected men, for those who believe such demographic attributes matter, struck down laws that had been supported by majorities and enacted by many states, which heavily restricted or outright banned Abortion procedures. The sole purpose of Roe was to deny citizens the right to enact the anti-abortion laws, no matter how much popular support they commanded. And he says this extreme confusion embedded in heated debates over the Supreme Court was perhaps most vividly illustrated by Walid Shahid, the popular left-wing activist, current spokesman for the left-wing group Justice Democrats, and previously a top aide and advisor to squad members, including Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Shahid, who, needless to say, supports Roe, posted a quote from Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address in 1861, in which which Shahid evidently believes supports his view that Roe must be upheld. But the quote from Lincoln, which warns that the court must not become the primary institution that decides controversial political questions, doesn't support Roe at all. In fact, Lincoln's argument is the one most often cited in favor of overruling Roe. In fact, Lincoln's argument is the primary one on which Judge Alito relied in the draft opinion to justify overruling Roe, namely that democracy will be imperiled and the people will cease to be their own rulers if the Supreme Court, rather than the legislative branches, ends up deciding hot-button political questions such as abortion, about which the Constitution is silent. So, when we come back from the break, I'm going to share with you that quote from Abraham Lincoln. We'll touch a little bit more on the Supreme Court histrionics. You are listening to the Disciples of Liberty here on the America Out Loud Network. We'll be right back.
1: While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. There's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chance of getting sick. RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with COFIX Rx.
0: As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the
1: people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish
0: from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all.
2: Along with a healthy immune system, clean air is vital for optimal health. According to the EPA, we spend 90% of our time indoors, where germs are most concentrated. It's essential to clean indoor air. Genesis is the only technology that quickly, safely, and effectively kills pathogens, both in the air and on surfaces, in seconds, reducing the viral load in any environment. The powerful, well-built Genesis Fogger produces a dry, ultra-fine mist using HOCL, which occurs naturally in our own immune systems. We'll be living with airborne diseases in the future. New viruses and antibiotic-resistant superbugs are no problem for Genesis. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Visit GenesisFogger.com. America Out Loud Listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OutLoud at genesisbalker.com slash outloud.
1: Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
0: welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network. Well, we're talking about how the Supreme Court came to rule the country. And you're seeing that play out right now as you see some very serious angst about the Supreme Court possibly reversing the uh, Roe v. Wade decision. I And I think it's a pretty strong likelihood, and, you know, I'm not sad to see it go. But then again, you know, in the interest of full disclosure... I was adopted. I was put up for adoption as a baby. Uh, This was in the years just prior to Roe v. Wade. And I have often wondered, you know, would that have been a different or more difficult decision uh, for my my birth mother and birth father to put me up for adoption if it could have, you know, just been, you know, easily excused as well. You know, this is legal and kind of solves the problem. Maybe that was never an option for them, but it's, it's very interesting, you know, how many tens of millions of babies have been aborted since that time. Anyway, this is the quote from Abraham Lincoln, the pro-democracy quote, complete with bolded words that uh, that Mr. Shahid posted to support his, uh, his idea that Lincoln was upholding the kind of uh, reasoning that would uphold Roe v. Wade. The quote says, I do not forget the position assumed by some that constitutional questions are to be divide- decided by the Supreme Court, nor... Do I deny that such decisions must be binding, in any case, upon the parties to a suit? As to the object of that suit, at the same time, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal." End quote. Now, Glenn Greenwald points out, it is just inexplicable to cite this Lincoln quote as a defense of Roe. Look at what Lincoln said. If the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by the decisions of the Supreme Court, then the people will have ceased to be their own rulers. That's exactly the argument that has been made by pro-life activists for years against Roe. And it perfectly tracks Alito's primary view as defended in his draft opinion. Alito's decision, if it becomes the court's ruling, would not itself ban abortions, but it would lift the judicial prohibition on the ability of states to enact laws restricting or banning abortions. In other words, it would take this highly controversial question of abortion and remove it from the court's purview and restore it to federal and state legislatures to decide it. Now, Glenn Greenwald says one cannot defend Roe by invoking the values of democracy or majoritarian will. Roe was the classic case of a Supreme Court ruling that denied the right of majorities to decide what laws should govern their lives and their society. One can defend Roe only by explicitly defending anti-majoritarian and anti-democratic values, namely that the abortion question should be decided by a panel of unelected judges, not by the people or their elected representatives. So the defense of democracy invoked by Lincoln and championed by Shahid can only be used to advocate that this abortion debate should be returned to the democratic processes, which is exactly what Alito argued. This is from the, the leaked brief, or the leaked draft, rather. Samuel Alito writes, quote, Abortion presents a profound moral issue on which Americans hold sharply conflicting views. Some believe fervently that a human being comes into being at conception and that abortion ends an innocent life. Others feel just as strongly that any regulation of abortion invades a woman's right to control her own body and prevents women from achieving full equality. Still others in a third group think that abortion should be allowed under some but not all circumstances. And those within this group hold a variety of views about the particular restrictions that should be imposed. For the first 185 years after the adoption of the Constitution, each state was permitted to address this issue in accordance with the views of its citizens. Then, in 1973, this court decided Roe v. Wade. At the time of Roe, 30 states still prohibited abortions at all stages. In the years prior to that decision, about a third of the states had liberalized their laws. But Roe abruptly ended. That political process, it imposed the same highly restrictive regime on the entire nation and it effectively struck down the abortion laws of every state. As Justice Byron White aptly put it in his dissent, the decision court represented the exercise of raw judicial power. Alito also says Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decision has had damaging consequences. It's time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. The permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved like most important questions in our democracy, by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. This is what the Constitution and the rule of law demand. End quote. So Glenn Greenwald says rhetoric that heralds the values of democracy and warns of the tyranny of unelected judges and the like is not a rational or even a viable way to defend Roe. That abortion rights should be decided democratically rather than by a secret tribunal of unelected men in robes is and always has been the anti-Roe argument. The right of the people to decide rather than judges is the primary value which Alito repeatedly invokes in defending the overruling of Roe. And once again, empowering citizens through their elected representatives to make these decisions. So the only way Roe can be defended is through an explicit appeal to the virtues of the anti-democratic and anti-majoritarian principles enshrined in the Constitution. Namely, because the Constitution guarantees the right to have an abortion through a more generalized right of privacy, then majorities are stripped of the power to enact laws restricting it. So he says few people like to admit that their preferred preferred views depend upon a denial of the rights of the majority to decide or that their position is steeped in anti-democratic values. But he says there is and has always been a crucial role for such values in the proper functioning of the United States and especially the protection of minority rights. Now, if you want to rant about the supremacy and sanctity of democracy and the evils of unelected judges, then you will necessarily end up on the side of Justice Alito and the four other justices who appear ready to overrule Roe. Anti-Roe judges are the ones who believe the abortion rights, that abortion rights should be determined through majority will and democratic process. Roe itself was the ultimate denial, the negation of unrestrained democracy and majoritarian will. As in all cases, whether Roe's anti-democratic ruling was an affirmation of fundamental rights or a form of judicial tyranny, depends solely on whether one believes that the Constitution bars the enactment of laws which restrict abortion or whether it's silent on that question. But as distasteful as it may be to some, the only way to defend Roe is to acknowledge that your view is that the will of the majority is irrelevant to this conflict, that elected representatives have no power to decide these questions. And that all debates about abortion must be entrusted solely to unelected judges who to authoritatively decide them without regard to what majorities believe or want. Again, these are the words of Glenn Greenwald. I may have pointed this out before. Glenn, I think, would probably fall to the left side of the spectrum, but this is what I love about him, and and why I think he is an an excellent source to go to on these kind of matters. This is just some straight-up, you know, analysis. There's, there's not a lot of ideological baggage to go with this. So even, you know, even if he, I mean, he's, he's a gay guy married to another guy living in Brazil. Um, he's not out there thumping a Bible to do this. But he's, he's looking rationally at what the Constitution says and what it doesn't. And I think his analysis is, is definitely worth considering. So... That's something that uh, that may be worth putting on your radar screen. Now, I want to shift gears here for just a moment and talk just a moment about uh, lockdowns. I know that uh, right now a lot of us are breathing freely. My wife actually just just booked a a flight that's going to cause her to have to stay overnight in San Francisco and I heard her complaining, even though she's not, she's not nearly as anti-mask and anti-mandate stuff as I am. She, she's much easier to go with the flow. But I heard her clearly complaining this morning that the hotel at which she's going to have to stay is saying, now, of course, you are required to wear a mask on this property. And I heard her telling my daughter, you know, this is because San Francisco essentially is like another country. <laughs> I thought, well, she's right. But while the, the memory of the lockdowns is still fresh in our minds we should probably keep in mind just the amount of damage that was done and why we should never go back to it. I want to share a couple quick commentaries with you. One from Bertine Schaefer. This is from her substack. It's titled, The Lockdowns Were Not a Terrible Idea Because COVID-19 Is Not a Serious Illness. In fact, I just want you to know, this was written back in June of 2020, but listen to how well this has aged. Because she's warning, if enough of us don't comprehend the, comprehend the reasons these lockdowns were terrible, we're just going to be in for more of the same. So she says, I'm going to say this over and over and over again. The reasons the lockdowns were or are a terrible idea is not that COVID-19 is not a very serious threat. Yes, for the majority of the population, it's true that it's not a very serious threat. But that's not the point. Even if COVID-19 were airborne Ebola or something even more horrifying... Centralized decisions imposed from the top down by people who will never have to pay for the harm they do would still be a terrible solution. Why? Because centralized coercive decision-making is always, always, always the worst possible way to make decisions. Why? Because knowledge problem. No central authority can possibly have the same knowledge that thousands or millions of individuals do about what their wants and needs and risk tolerances are. Because calculation problem, meaning without private ownership and decision making and the signals that come from that, the people making things can't know how much of what is needed or wanted, but mostly because no accountability. Coercive authorities are never held accountable for their actions. That is the whole foundation of government. So she says we're seeing the results of authoritarian centralized decision making in a crisis unfold around us in real time from an inability to test for COVID-19 because of the CDC's monopoly on testing to shortages of basic items due to anti-price gouging laws and foolish policies by some private vendors to a massive unprecedented shutdown of a huge portion of the economy with no rational justification and that will yield untold costs in livelihoods, psychological well-being, and even lives to New York Governor Cuomo's murderous order forcing nursing homes to become death traps for the elderly. Now, she says, it's troubling that I even have to point this out. I feel like I'm living in a massive dysfunctional family where everyone else wants to put the blame anywhere but where it actually belongs on the abusive parent figure of the state. But she says, I'm going to keep on saying it till the rest of you see what's right in front of you. And I promise not to make fun of you when you finally do. Why? Because this doesn't end with COVID-19. One day there will be an even more terrifying threat and this is because and this is because they've established the precedent of shutting down and controlling our entire lives over this relatively mild one that's when they will say well whatever you thought of covid-19 you have to admit this time we are facing an extremely dangerous threat indeed this time you cannot deny that we need the government to step in and save us all and she says no We have seen over and over and over again the government stepping in only to make things much worse. And her point is humanity cannot afford another lesson in this. This is why it's so critical for people to understand this. The lockdowns were not a terrible idea because COVID-19 is not a serious illness. They were a terrible idea because centralized coercive decision making is always a terrible idea. We have a whole century of experience to show us this. And now we have a living example right in front of us. So she says, please do not let your emotional attachment to the state blind you to this lesson. We really might not survive having to go through it one more time. Now, again, for something that was written back in June of 2020, I think it's been borne out. But I want to drive the point home just a little bit uh, more pointedly, if you will. Let's uh, switch over to Jeffrey Tucker writing for the Brownstone Institute. When haircuts were illegal, he says, unless we just decide to forget, historians will look back in astonishment. Healthcare spending declined in a pandemic. People were blocked from houses of worship. Choirs couldn't sing. Drones flew the skies to ferret out and report house parties. Rental cars were fumigated with something. Crossing a state line meant mandatory two-week quarantines. Dentistry was largely banned. And forget elective surgeries, they were banned. And for months, in most parts of the country, from mid-March to about June of 2020, if not longer, getting a haircut was illegal. It was the result of a disease panic, for sure, but more. Governments decided that they knew the risks better than people, and so would not allow people to make their own choices. Multitudes of barbers and stylists sat at home while the hair of the people grew longer and longer. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, many friends of mine cut their own. Others found speakeasy barbers. He says, one friend swore me to secrecy as he told the tale of a small barn in a remote place in New Jersey. He had heard from another friend to knock on the back door. He tried it, and a lady appeared, said nothing, sat him down in a chair and cut. Five minutes later, she said, $25. He left while making sure no one saw him. Right, wearing a a hat and a trench coat and sunglasses. (laughs) Others asked family members to do the deed. As the Washington Examiner wrote at the time, this virus will surely lead to plenty of unfortunate innovation in hairstyles. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, of course, the truth is that this was not the virus doing this. It was law. The law, or was it merely an enforced CDC recommendation, required six feet of distance between all people. State and local governments declared haircuts non-essential. As a result, commercial haircuts were abolished de facto. And unless you were a politician who somehow managed to find a salon, but even when they were caught, they just apologized and they kept their power. And it was the same in the UK where criminal penalties were applied even long after they became legal again. Now, journalists who wrote about the fiasco, which also covered manicures and pedicures, had to change names to protect the guilty. Jeffrey Tucker says, For my own part, I managed to find a barber and whisper to friends about how to participate, but I recall the fear, the worry, the sneaking around, the strangeness of it all. Maybe it all seems silly now, but he says, I can assure you that it was not at the time. Texas Governor Greg Abbott developed a good reputation for opening the state earlier than others, but the reality is he was at the time brutal against Salon's. One report said in an act of defiance against Governor Abbott's continued shutdown of barbershops and other businesses, two Republican lawmakers sat in a Houston area salon on Tuesday while getting illegal haircuts. Here's a quote from the story. Representative Steve Toth from the Woodlands and Representative Briscoe Kane from Deer Park added fuel to the movement against state and locally mandated restrictions, which are intended to slow the spread of COVID-19. On Friday a sliver of Texas businesses were allowed to reopen after Governor Greg Abbott announced he would let Texas's stay-at-home order expire. The multi-phase reopening plan currently allows some businesses like retail stores, restaurants, movie theaters and malls to reopen with limited capacity. But big businesses, but businesses rather including barber shops, hair salons, bars and gyms can't reopen yet. Because Abbott Abbott said a team of medical experts has advised that it's still unsafe. And just to drive the point home here, a salon owner was sentenced to seven days in jail. In Texas. This is from the news story. A Texas salon owner was sentenced to seven days in jail on Tuesday after refusing to shut down despite social distancing restrictions, requiring her business remain closed amid the coronavirus outbreak. Dallas Judge Eric Moyer held Salon Alamode owner Shelley Luther in criminal and civil contempt of court for refusing to comply with a restraining order issued in late April, according to court documents. He also ordered the company to pay a fine of $500 for every day the salon violated the court's mandate for the business to stay closed. Luther is planning to appeal the decision. The defiance of the court's order was, an open, was open, flagrant, and intentional, Moyer wrote. The defendants, although having been given an opportunity to do so, have expressed no contrition, remorse, or regret for their contemptuous action. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be vulgar, but to read that judge's statement makes my middle finger want to stand straight in the air. I'm very grateful for people like Shelley Luther who are willing to challenge and defy that authority. And, by the way, just so if you don't remember there came a point where she was actually freed by the governor i don't know if the if the you know charges were dropped or if if the sentence commuted what i don't know what the legal term would be but even even uh, governor greg abbott finally looked around and went are you serious this is what it's come to and sprung her from jail Now, Jeffrey Tucker says an article in Vox somehow managed to racialize the demand that salons open up. He says, I still can't follow the argument, even though I've read the piece three times. It has something to do with the difference between types of hair and privilege and discrimination or something like that. He says, I suspect the thesis is that those who wanted haircuts were racist in some way. Nonetheless, the situation was unsustainable. So states started opening salons, but with crazy rules that made no sense at all. It was virus control made up on the spot. For instance, check out this preposterous advisory from Connecticut. Hair salons and barbershops. In phase one, hair salons and barbershops will open at 50% capacity by appointment only with waiting rooms closed. Services offered will be restricted to hairdressing and eyebrows. Nothing that would require removal of a face mask. In other words, beard trimming, lip waxing, etc. Blow drying not permitted. So no blow drying. Since clearly that spreads COVID all over and leads to mass death, blowing COVID everywhere. And 50% capacity was a classic move that discriminated against small shops in favor of large ones. The larger the shop... The more stations, the more people could fit in under a 50% rule. And the same was true for restaurants, of course. It was privilege for large businesses over smaller competitors. And true to form, the government of New York put out a 10-page advisory that, that struck Jeffrey Tucker on reading that it was basically impossible to follow. Listen to this. This is from the New York advisory. Responsible parties must prohibit the use of small spaces, in other words, behind cash registers, elevators, stock rooms, by more than one individual at a time unless all individuals in such spaces at the same time are wearing acceptable face coverings. However, occupancy must never exceed 75% of the maximum capacity of the space, unless it is designed for use by a single occupant. Responsible parties should increase ventilation with outdoor air to the greatest extent possible, opening windows, leaving doors open, while maintaining safety protocols. It goes on to say, Responsible parties should encourage the use of touchless payment options or pay ahead when when available. Minimize handling cash, credit cards, reward cards, and mobile devices where possible. In other words, consider allowing customers to tip via electronic payment rather than with cash. Responsible parties should put in place measures to reduce bidirectional foot traffic using tape or signs with arrows in narrow aisles, hallways, or spaces. And post signage and distance markers denoting spaces of six feet in all commonly used areas and in areas in which lines are commonly formed or people may congregate, in other words, in front of appointment desks or cash register areas, health screening stations, break rooms, where possible, place markers or barriers to encourage one directional traffic. It goes on to say responsible parties must post signage and distance markers denoting spaces of six feet in all commonly used areas, and any areas in which lines are commonly formed or people may congregate. In other words, clock-in, clock-out stations, health screening stations, break rooms, cash register areas. And responsible parties may consider implementing a by-appointment-only policy to limit walk-in customers and congregation. Now, Jeffrey Tucker's response is, Good luck finding out the science behind all this rigmarole, because there never was any. Not one life was saved. At least no one has demonstrated that. And in the end, what happened? Most people got COVID anyway. All it meant was three more months, three months or more rather of bad hair. So it would be worth reinvest- worth investigating whether and to what extent these preposterous rules contributed to forcing governments to reopen after disastrous lockdowns. But he says, let's not forget those months when the haircut was illegal. And when governments finally allowed them, it didn't allow blow dryers or it made customers follow arrows on the floor and use only touchless payment methods. That's pandemic control in a nutshell. What a disgrace this entire period was to science, rationality, human rights and freedom. My understanding is that uh, right now. To enter the United States, you have to be tested to make sure that you're not uh, not bringing COVID with you um, and, and I'm not trying to be flip when I say this, but COVID is very widespread right now in the United States. It's not like, ah, oh, we have almost no instances of it, and that's why we don't want people bringing it here. no it's it's still very much out there, and it's still it's still there. but we've stopped pretending like it is the Black Death. We've stopped acting as if, oh my goodness, this is going to stop everybody in their tracks. They're just going to basically fall down and decay right there in front of you. Look, I understand. It's For some people, it can be a very serious virus. And yes, I know people who have died of complications from COVID. But I also have noticed how normal life has been since the government turned its attention from pumping fear in the media, pumping fear at us 24-7 with the blood-red number count going ever higher and all these dire warnings. Once they saw the polls that showed how badly these mandatory coercive measures were were going over with the populace, well, let's just say there was a lot of elected leaders who had a sudden change of heart. Well, maybe it is time that we go ahead and lift some of these restrictions. After all, you know, we're we're reasonable people and God-like. We've heard your cries and now we're here to answer your prayers. Okay, I'm not fooled. You shouldn't be fooled either. It's because enough people simply said, I'm willing to embrace or to face whatever risk there is. And that's what they do. And, you know, I still encounter people who occasionally are wearing masks. It's rare. You know, once upon a time, you know, probably... 30 to 50%. I remember a point in time where living in the Salt Lake area along the Wasatch Front in Utah, which is, you know, pretty highly populated, it was probably 80, 90% of people wearing masks. Now, I'd put it in single digits percentage-wise, maybe, you know, low single digits. The mind shift has, has taken place and most people I know either have had COVID and recovered from it or they just realize it wasn't nearly as deadly as they were told. I mean the survival rate of people who got it is still ninety-nine point seven percent. But the thing that still lingers, and this is the this is the question that, that weighs in my mind, when are the ones who en- enacted all those lockdowns? one are the ones who vigorously enforced all of those stupid rules? Destroyed businesses, destroyed lives, put people in jail, find them. When do they get to answer for their bad decisions? See, this is the beauty of of rule by bureaucrats. Everybody just passes the buck. Well, you know, I was just simply following CDC guidelines. The CDC, well, we were just simply following the science. And the National Institutes of Health, well, we were simply following recommendations of others. Nobody wants to step up and say, I was the one who said, this is what we should do. And and nobody wants to say, I'm proud of it and I would do it again probably because they don't want to find themselves swinging from a lamppost, I guess. I don't know. They know people are pretty fed up with it. I'm not encouraging violence. I'm just saying that unrepentant attitude is not likely to provoke a sense of understanding or mercy in the hearts of people who just sat there and watched their lives and their livelihoods systematically destroyed over the last couple of years. So I hope it doesn't sound vengeful or bloodthirsty to say, I really want to see those people in authority. And I'm talking from governors right on down to local health department directors. I would like to see them have their Nuremberg moment. In other words, to sit in a criminal proceeding and answer for what they've done. I have no idea what the punishments will be, so I'm not going to sit there and fantasize about, yeah, we'll tar and feather them or whatever. I just want to make sure that there is some official record of them being held to account for the policies that they implemented or the policies that they supported. And that if that sounds too radical, I don't know what to say. I guess maybe I'm just too radical then. I think about this, uh, this mom in Meridian, Idaho, Sarah Walton Brady, arrested for taking her kids to a playground now, technically, she was arrested because when the when Officer Friendly came along and said, "Yeah, oh, this is an illegal gathering. This playground is closed. Everybody, clear out of here," she didn't jump and cower and, and grovel as she should have. In fact, she's being married to a police officer, she said, "Look, we're we're playing with our kids outside. This is just a play date. There's nothing criminal going on here." And she asked the officer, "What are you going to do? Arrest me?" Well, the answer was yes. Now, this was back in I believe April of 2020. It's been two years. And they are still dragging her case out through the Idaho courts. They've not given her a trial. She's had to change lawyers multiple times, spent tens of thousands of dollars in legal bills. Obviously, the punishment is really, or the process is part of the punishment, but I just have to ask you in any way is that serving justice? I mean, I've tried it looking at every angle I possibly can. I've tried standing on my head. I just don't see it. To me, it looks like the state is saying, look, what we say goes, and now dare you question us, because we can't be wrong. But sometimes they are. Let's not forget that. This is the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and you are listening to the America Out Loud Network.